Chapter One of Under the Andes by Rex Stout. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Roger Moline. Under the Andes by Rex Stout. Chapter One The Sweetheart of a King. The scene was not exactly new to me. Moved by the spirit of adventure, or by an access of ennui which overtakes me at times, I had several times visited the gaudy establishment of Mercer on the fashionable side of Fifth Avenue in the fifties. In either case I had found disappointment. Where the stake is a matter of indifference there can be no excitement, and besides I had always been in luck but on this occasion I had a real purpose before me, though not an important one, and I surrendered my hat and coat to the servant at the door with a feeling of satisfaction. At the entrance to the main room I met Bob Garforth leaving. There was a scowl on his face, and his hand trembled as he held it forth to take mine. "'Harry is inside. What a rotten hole,' said he, and passed on. I smiled at his remark. It was being whispered about that Garforth had lost a quarter of a million at Mercer's within the month, and passed inside. Gaudy, I have said it was, and it needs no other word. Not in its elements, but in their arrangement. The rugs and pictures and hangings testified to the taste of the man who had selected them, but they were abominably disposed, and there were too many of them. The room, which was unusually large, held two or three leather divans, an English buffet, and many easy chairs. A smoking table, covered, stood in one corner. Groups of men were gathered about each of the three roulette wheels ranged along the farther side. Through a door to the left could be seen the poker tables, surrounded by grave or jocular faces. Above the low buzz of conversation there sounded the continual droning voices of the croupiers as they called the winning numbers, and an occasional exclamation from a customer. I made my way to the center wheel and stood at the rear of the crowd surrounding it. The ball rolled. There was a straining of necks amid an intense silence. Then, as the little pellet wavered and finally came to a rest in the hole number twenty-four, a fervent oath of disappointment came from someone in front of me. The next moment, rising on tiptoe to look over the intervening shoulders, I found myself looking into the white face of my younger brother, Harry. "'Paul!' he exclaimed, turning quickly away. I pushed my way through and stood at his side. There was no sound from the group of onlookers. It is not to be wondered at if they hesitated to offend Paul Lamar. "'My dear boy,' said I, "'I missed you at dinner. And though this may occupy your mind, it can scarcely fill your stomach. Haven't you had enough?' Harry looked at me. His face was horribly pale and his eyes bloodshot. They could not meet mine. "'For heaven's sake, Paul, let me alone.' he said, hardly above a whisper. I have lost ninety thousand. In spite of myself, I started. No wonder he was pale. And yet... 
"'That's nothing,' I whispered back. "'But you are making a show of yourself. "'Just now you are swearing like a sailor. "'See how your hand trembles? "'You are not made for this, Harry. "'It makes you forget that you're a gentleman. "'They are laughing at you. "'Come!' "'But I say I have lost ninety thousand dollars,' said the boy, and there was wildness in his eye. "'Let me alone, Paul.' "'I will repay you.' "'No. Let me alone.' "'Harry!' "'I say no.' His mouth was drawn tight, and his eyes glared sullenly as those of a stubborn child. Clearly it was impossible to get him away without making a scene, which was unthinkable. For a moment I was at a complete loss. Then the croupier's voice sounded suddenly in my ear. "'You are interrupting us, sir.' I silenced him with a glance and turned to my brother, having decided in an instant on the only possible course. "'Here, let me have your chair. I will get it back for you. Come.' He looked at me for a moment in hesitation, then rose without a word, and I took his place. The thing was tiresome enough, but how could I have avoided it? The blood that rushes to the head of the gambler is certainly not food for the intellect, and, besides, I was forced by circumstances into a heroic attitude, and nothing is more distasteful to a man of sense. But I had a task before me. If a man lays bricks, he should lay them well, and I do not deny that there was a stirring of my pulse as I sat down. Is it possible for a mind to directly influence the movements of a little ivory ball? I do not say yes, but will you say no? I watched the ball with the eye of an eagle, but without straining. I played with the precision of a man with an unerring system, though my selections were really made quite at random, and I handled my bets with the sureness and swift dexterity with which a chess-master places his pawn or piece in position to demoralize his opponent. This told on the nerves of the croupier. Twice I corrected a miscalculation of his, and before I had played an hour his hand was trembling with agitation. And I won. The details would be tiresome, but I won. And when, after six hours of play, without an instant's rest, I rose exhausted from my chair and handed my brother the amount he had lost. I pocketed a few thousands for myself in addition. There were some who tried to detain me with congratulations and expressions of admiration, but I shook them off and led Harry outside to my car. The chauffeur poor devil, was completely stiff from the long wait, and I ordered him into the tonneau and took the wheel myself. Partly was this due to pity for the driver, partly to a desire to leave Harry to his own thoughts, which I knew must be somewhat turbulent. He was silent during the drive, which was not long, and I smiled to myself in the darkness of the early morning, as I heard, now and then, an uncontrollable sigh break through his dry lips. Of thankfulness, perhaps. I preceded him up the stoop and into the hall of the old house on Lower Fifth Avenue, near Tenth Street, that had been the home of our grandfather and our father before us. 
There, in the dim light, I halted and turned, while Evans approached from the inner rooms, rubbing eyes heavy with sleep. Good old Evans! Yet the faithfulness of such a servant has its disadvantages. Well, said Harry in a thin high voice. The boy's nerves were stretched tightly. Two words from me would have produced an explosion. So I clapped him on the shoulder and sent him off to bed. He went sulkily, without looking around, and his shoulders drooped like those of an old man. But I reflected that that would all be changed after a few hours of sleep. After all, he is a Lamar, I said to myself as I ordered Evans to bring wine and sandwiches to the library. It was the middle of the following afternoon before Harry appeared downstairs. He had slept eleven hours. I was seated in the library when I heard his voice in the hall. Breakfast! Breakfast for five! At once! I smiled. That was Harry's style of wit. After he had eaten his breakfast for five, he came in to see me with the air of a man who was determined to have it out. I myself was in no mood for talk. Indeed, I scarcely ever am in such a mood, unless it be with a pretty woman or a great sinner. You may regard that sentence as tautological, if you like. I shan't quarrel about it. What I mean to say is that it was with a real effort I set myself to the distasteful task before me, rendered necessary by the responsibility of my position as elder brother and head of the family. Harry began by observing with assumed indifference, "'Well, and now there's the deuce to pay, I suppose.' "'As his representative, I am not a hard creditor,' I smiled. "'I know, I know,' he began impetuously, and stopped. I continued, "'My boy, there is always the deuce to pay. "'If not for one thing, then for another.' so your observation would serve for any other time as well as now. The point is this. You are ten years younger than I, and you are under my care, and much as I dislike to talk, we must reach an understanding. Well, said Harry, lighting a cigarette and seating himself on the arm of a chair. You have often thought, I continued, that I have been trying to interfere with your freedom. But you are mistaken. I have merely been trying to preserve it, and I have succeeded. When our father and mother died, you were fifteen years of age. You are now twenty-two, and I take some credit for the fact that those seven years have left no stain, however slight, on the name of Lamar. Do I deserve that? cried Harry. What have I done? Nothing irremediable, but you must admit that now and then I have been at no small pains to, um, assist you. But there, I don't intend to speak of the past, and to tell the truth, I suspect that we are of one mind. You regard me as more or less of an encumbrance. You think your movements are hampered. You consider yourself to be treated as a child unjustly. Well, for my part, I find my duty, for such I consider it, grows more irksome every day. 
If I am in your way, you are no less in mine. To make it short, you are now twenty-two years old. You chafe at restraint. You think yourself abundantly able to manage your own affairs. Well, I have no objection. Harry stared at me. You mean, he began. Exactly. But, Paul, there is no need to discuss it. For me, it is mostly selfishness. But he wanted to talk, and I humored him. For two hours we sat, running the scale from business to sentiment, and I must confess that I was more than once surprised by a flash from Harry. Clearly he was developing, and for the first time I indulged a hope that he might prove himself fit for self-government. At least I had given him the rope. It remained for time to discover whether or not he would avoid getting tangled up in it. When we had finished, we understood each other better, I think, than we ever had before, and we parted with the best of feeling. Three days later, I sailed for Europe, leaving Harry in New York. It was my first trip across in eighteen months, and I aimed at pleasure. I spent a week in London and Munich, then, disgusted with the actions of some of my fellow countrymen with whom I had the misfortune to be acquainted, I turned my face south for Madrid. There I had a friend, a woman not beautiful but eminently satisfying, not loose but liberal with a character and a heart. In more ways than one she was remarkable. She had an affection for me. Indeed, some years previously I had been in a way to play Albert Savaron to her Francesca Colonna, an arrangement prevented only by my constitutional dislike for any prolonged or sustained effort in a world the slave of vanity and folly. It was from the lips of this friend that I first heard the name of Desiree Lemire. It was late in the afternoon on the fashionable drive. Long, broad, and shady, though scarcely cool, it was here that we took our daily carriage exercise. Anything more strenuous is regarded with horror by the ladies of Spain. There was a shout and a sudden hush. All carriages were halted and their occupants uncovered, for royalty was passing. The coach, a magnificent though cumbersome affair, passed slowly and gravely by. On the rear seat were the princess and her little English cousin, while opposite them sat the great duke himself. By his side was a young man of five-and-twenty, with a white face and weak chin, and glassy, meaningless eyes. I turned to my companion and asked in a low tone who he was. Her whispered answer caused me to start with surprise, and I turned to her with a question. "'But why is he in Madrid?' "'Oh, as to that,' said my friend, smiling, "'you must ask Desiree.' "'And who is Desiree?' "'What? You do not know Desiree?' "'Impossible!' she exclaimed. "'My dear,' said I, 
You must remember that for the past year and a half I have been buried in the land of pork and gold. The gossip there is neither of the poet nor the court. I am ignorant of everything. You would not have been so much longer, said my friend, for Desiree is soon going to America. Who is she? No one knows. What is she? Well, she is all things to some men, and some things to all men. She is a courtesan among queens, and a queen among courtesans. She dances and loves, and, I presume, eats and sleeps. For the past two years she has bewitched him. She pointed down the drive to where the royal coach was disappearing in the distance. And he has given her everything. It was for her that the Duke of Bellarmine built the magnificent chalet of which I was telling you on Lake Lucerne. You remember that Prince Delansky shot himself, for political reasons, in his Parisian palace? But for Desiree he would be alive today. She is a witch and a she-devil, and the most completely fascinating woman in the world. I smiled. What a reputation! And you say she is going to America? Yes. It is to be supposed that she has heard that every American is a king, and it is no wonder if she is tired of only one royal lover at a time. And listen, Paul. Well? You... you must not meet her. Oh, but you do not know her power. I laughed and pressed her hand, assuring her that I had no intention of allowing myself to be bewitched by a she-devil. But as our carriage turned and started back down the long drive toward the hotel, I found myself haunted by the white face and staring eyes of the young man in the royal coach. I stayed two weeks longer in Madrid. At the end of that time, finding myself completely bored, for no woman can possibly be amusing for more than a month at a time, I bade my friend au revoir and departed for the east. But I found myself just too late for an archaeological expedition into the heart of Egypt, and after a tiresome week or so in Cairo and Constantinople, I again turned my face toward the west. At Rome I met an old friend, one Pierre Janvour, in the French diplomatic service, and since I had nothing better to do, I accepted his urgent invitation to join him on a vacation trip to Paris. But the joys of Paris are absurd to a man of thirty-two who has seen the world and tasted it and judged it. Still, I found some amusement. Jean Vaur had a pretty wife and a daughter, eight years old, daintily beautiful, and I allowed myself to become soaked in domestic sentiment. I really found myself on the point of envying him. Madame Janvour was a most excellent housekeeper and manager. Little Eugenie and I would often walk together in the public gardens, and now and then her mother would join us. And, as I say, I found myself on the point of envying my friend Janvour, this diversion would have ended soon in any event, but it was brought to an abrupt termination by a cablegram from my New York lawyers, 
asking me to return to America at once. Some rascality it was on the part of the agent of my estate, which had alarmed them. The cablegram was bare of detail. At any rate, I could not afford to disregard it, and arranged passage on a liner sailing from Cherbourg the following day. My hostess gave me a farewell dinner, which heightened my regret at being forced to leave, and little Eugenie seemed really grieved at my departure. It is pleasant to leave a welcome behind you. That is really the only necessary axiom of the traveler. Jean Vore took me to the railroad station, and even offered to accompany me to Cherbourg, but I refused to tear him away from his little paradise. We stood on the platform arguing the matter, when I suddenly became aware of that indistinct flutter and bustle seen in public places at some unusual happening or the unexpected arrival of a great personage. I turned and saw that which was worthy of the interest it had excited. In the first place, the daintiest little electric brougham in the world, fragile and delicate as a toy, a fairy's chariot. Then the fairy herself descended. She cannot be described in detail. I caught a glimpse of glorious golden hair, softly massive. Gray-blue eyes shot with lightning, restless, devouring, implacable, indescribably beautiful. A skin wondrously fine, with the purity of marble and the warmth of velvet. Nose and mouth rather too large, but perfectly formed and breathing the fire and power of love. Really, it was rather later that I saw all this. At the time, there was but a confused impression of elegance and beauty and terrible power. She passed from the brougham to her railway carriage, supremely unconscious of the hundreds of eyes turned on her, and a general sigh of satisfaction and appreciation came from the throng as she disappeared within her compartment. I turned to Jean Vore. "'Who is she?' "'What?' he exclaimed in surprise. "'But, my dear Lamar, not to know her argues one a barbarian.' "'Nevertheless, I do not know her.' "'Well, you will have an opportunity. "'She is going to America, and since she is on this train, "'she will, of course, take the same boat as yourself. "'But, my friend, beware!' "'But who is she?' "'Desiree Lemire.' End of chapter 1 Recording by Roger Moline